Welcome to Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew. I wanted to talk about today's topic back in October, like at the end of October, because that's when I visited it. And I really wanted to do it while it was still fresh on my mind, but this story really isn't something you forget. So I think I've still got it. And man, this is a weird place. Um, and it's actually a perfect topic for this show because it is very historic, um, but according to my new friend Bear, it's also got a lot of paranormal activity. I also feel like I should warn you all before I get started that this will be very much about the Civil War, and specifically, I'll be talking a lot about the Confederacy. So if that's something that you just are not interested in hearing about, that's fine. I understand. Just skip this episode. Um, but you know, like it or not, uh, these stories are a part of Kentucky history. And what happened in this house during the 1860s, during the Civil War, is probably a big part of why so many believe that it's as haunted as it is. So here we go. This is the story of Octagon Hall. The first thing you should know about Octagon Hall is that that name is very literal. The building is an octagon. It's located in Franklin, Kentucky, that's Simpson County, down south past Bowling Green, almost to the Tennessee border. It's rural, it's farmland, pretty, quiet, and in 1847, although some might argue it was earlier than that, a man named Andrew Jackson Caldwell who was described by the Park City Daily News as an eccentric southerner, laid a foundation on a piece of property in Franklin. The property was a 1,500-acre farm with cattle, crops, and tobacco. And for many reasons, this property would become very unique and historic, and Caldwell intended it to be that way. When I visited the hall, I sat with one of the guys who is in charge of keeping the place running. He's part of the Octagon Hall Foundation, which runs the museum. Bear told me that Caldwell was a mason, and there are several Masonic features throughout the property, and he said that Masons have visited the hall, and they've confirmed this, although they stay somewhat secretive about all the details. But uh, the big one is that Masons revere the octagon, and apparently they're into the number 13, so you see 13 come into play throughout the building of this structure. So there, uh, the ceilings are 13 feet high. There are 13 basement stairs. Um, the windows are laid out in a 666 pattern and the doors are all installed upside down from the way they would normally be attached. So they look like upside down crosses. There's a fireplace in almost every room the door frames are unusually tall and wide. They're, they're huge. And not only is the exterior built like a fortress, but the interior walls also have three layers of brick. Brick made on site by the Caldwell slaves. Part of why it was built so sturdy was because Andrew Caldwell was afraid of storms. And so, having it this way would kind of ease his mind a little bit during bad weather. 
the foundation is made from limestone cut into eight foot long slabs and all the woodwork was done by slaves as well uh, there was one slave in particular who was a really good woodworker um, so apparently this guy did all the original flooring and like the stair banisters and all that so um their slaves in the 1860 census caldwell was listed as having ninety five hundred dollars in personal property and he owned 34 slaves and they had uh, three buildings behind the main house that were slave quarters there's also a subcellar beyond the main basement and one of caldwell's sons later said uh, in a letter that he wrote that that sub cellar in the basement was stored uh, was used for storing sweet potatoes there are all sorts of nooks and crannies in this place that i'll get into in detail in a little bit um another cool thing about this house is that it was built in a very strategic position and the windows are in the very center of the house and that's because caldwell was paying close attention to the changing of the seasons and he wanted to make it so that you could watch perfectly each seasonal equinox directly out of each section of the house. I just love that. Plenty of tragedy occurred at this property during the Civil War. That's what most people know it for. But the problems actually started before then. While the hall was being built, Caldwell was still married to his first wife, Elizabeth, whom he married in 1844. However, she passed away from typhoid when she was just 30 years old. Uh, that was in 1851, so they'd only been married six years when she died, and Andrew was only 33. He remarried in 1854. He and his new wife, Harriet, would go on to have 11 children in a 12-year span, and only seven of them survived to adulthood. So Caldwell lost his young first wife to typhoid. Then his 11-year-old daughter um, was standing near a fire in the, I believe in the winter kitchen, when her dress caught on fire. And, you know, in that time period, girls wore those big crinolines and they were catching fire right and left. So that's what happened. Um, she lived for seven days with severe burns and she passed away on that seventh day. Then their 18 month old child fell down the stairs and broke its neck and died. So they, he had his fair share of sadness in that house before Andrew even reached his 40th birthday. Um, oh, I should also add that Caldwell did have three children with one of his slaves as well. Um, a big moment in Octagon Hall's timeline is the late uh, 1850s, like 1858. Caldwell had been a key figure in the efforts to bring the L&N Railroad through that area. And so when they finally made that happen, the railroad ran right behind the Octagon Hall property, like half a mile um, backing up to the edge of the property. So that was huge. And that development really kind of determined the future of Octagon Hall. So, all right, I'm getting a little out of my territory here. 
and I'm going to pull some from a book called Hidden History of Kentucky in the Civil War by Barry Craig. So thanks, Barry. Um, in 1861, Kentucky was pretty much neutral in the Civil War, but uh, the Kentucky-Jackson Purchase region was very sympathetic to the Confederacy. So much so, in fact, that they had a convention to discuss seceding, and Bowling Green became the Confederate capital of Kentucky in 1861. Um, Confederate Kentucky was the last of the 13 states to join. And they had a little steam in Kentucky at first. Uh, for a very short time, they occupied Frankfurt in the fall of 1862, but the Union ambushed them and sent them packing. And after that, Confederate Kentucky, quote, existed primarily on paper and was dissolved at the end of the war. But like I said, their home base for a while was Bowling Green. And there's still evidence of them being there today. Uh, there's an old pathway along Western Kentucky's campus that used to be a Civil War trench. It's sort of a lover's lane now. But uh, it goes along an old stone wall that was built in 1861 by Confederate troops. Uh, they had forts there on the hills of Western campus. Of course, this was near the LNN Railroad, where you could hop on and get to, among other places, Octagon Hall. Um, I also think it's worth mentioning that even though they had set up this uh, government and military base in Bowling Green, the town itself was pretty heavily pro-Union. It wasn't like this unanimously Confederate area. At least that's how Craig explains it in the book. And that seems right because by 1862, the Confederate soldiers were getting run out of Bowling Green. They had to retreat south towards Tennessee. They took off down Old Dixie Highway to get further south, and on February 13, 1862, around 9,000 men of the 9th Cavalry, led by Captain John William Caldwell, arrived at Octagon Hall. By the time these fleeing Confederate soldiers got to the hall, they were in pretty rough shape. They set up triage in the basement, so the basement became the hospital area, and men were dying right and left. They had to start digging mass graves, and they found bone piles on the property, so there's, there's evidence of this. Now understand that Andrew Caldwell and his family greeted these Confederate soldiers with open arms. Later, one of his sons wrote this about Caldwell. Quote, My father was an intense and openly avowed rebel and did all in his power to help the cause. He largely outfitted his nephew, John W. Caldwell of Russellville, who became colonel of the famous Orphan Brigade, and he never failed to aid a Confederate soldier when opportunity offered. So 9,000 men show up at Octagon Hall Many of them died, but none of them are in very good shape, right? If they aren't dying, they might be injured or sick. It's not pretty. So they regroup. They leave the next day, just like that. But they had to leave behind a lot of the sick, injured, and dying soldiers. And they left those people in the care of the Caldwell family and two other families nearby. And then two days later... The Union arrived. They immediately occupied Octagon Hall, 
and they slaughtered all the Confederate soldiers who'd been left behind. They took all the Caldwell's valuables, and they realized they could send supplies to Union soldiers further south via that railroad right behind the house. Um, I don't think, if Bear told me, I don't remember the exact situation, but for some reason, Union soldiers cut off Harriet Caldwell's hand. So there's a portrait of the Caldwells hanging over the fireplace in the dining room of Octagon Hall, and in that portrait, Harriet's arms are crossed, and there's like a leather glove, I think it's leather, covering where one of her hands should be. They both look a little worse for the wear in that portrait. Um, So the Union, you know, they definitely punished the Caldwell family for helping the Confederates. They reportedly killed all of their cattle, and they threw at least one carcass in their wells so that their drinking water was contaminated. They also ate all of their food, and if you think about it, it's pretty surprising that they didn't just burn down Octagon Hall when they were finished, but obviously they didn't. So all of this makes the Caldwell family, and especially Andrew, even more sympathetic to the South. In fact, he was so angry that in 1863, he had a Union supply train derailed on that stretch of railroad behind his house, and he burned it. And he took the bell off the train, and I believe they still have that bell at the house. So eventually then, the Union declared martial law in Franklin, in the town. So if a man, if a man left the area to go fight for the Confederacy, now they couldn't come home. But Andrew Caldwell says, guess what, Union? I've got secret hiding spaces all over my house. So this is how Octagon Hall became a safe house for the Orphan Brigade. And if you all ever hear me say that very slowly, it's because Orphan Brigade is such a tongue twister to me. I don't know why, but I cannot get it out. So sorry if I trip up on it. Um, But anyway, these hiding spaces, I got to see these. Um, There's a hollowed out space in the wall in the front foyer. And the front porch had space where you could go in the basement and access that area underneath. There was a tunnel off the kitchen through a set of yellow doors. And if you look through it, you can see where the actual tunnel starts. And so if you think about it, they're on the cave system down there and they've found multiple tunnels on the grounds and they haven't actually explored that much of it because it's dangerous and it's kind of sketchy and you wouldn't want Octagon Hall sinking into a sinkhole, but there definitely are tunnels all over the property. And so I I think he said that that one leading away from the house probably went to one of the slave quarters. But the Union knew that Caldwell was hiding soldiers. And so they dropped in on the Caldwell family all the time, searching the house, looking for stragglers. And there's one story from Caldwell's son um, about Andrew Caldwell being a beekeeper. He had dozens of hives and he would hide them up in the cupola in the house that isn't there anymore. And we'll talk about that later. But the Union soldiers found them and they demolished these hives. 
And the son remembered specifically one time when one of the Union soldiers stuck their bayonet into one of the hives to pull honey out, and he got attacked so badly that he had to go to the hospital. Which, I mean, I don't care which side you fought for, no one should disturb a beehive. Anyway, after the war, uh, fun fact, the remaining members of the Orphan Brigade had their annual reunion at Octagon Hall every year until 1910. Andrew Jackson Caldwell did not go on to live a long, happy life. He died shortly after the war came to an end on February 7, 1866. He died of typhoid at the age of 47 while his second wife was pregnant with their youngest child. So his story comes to an end there. Harriet continued to live in Octagon Hall with their family until she sold it decades later. So that was in either 1916 or 1918. I've seen different years and different reports. But the property was purchased by Dr. Miles Williams of Nashville and it was by that time just 216 acres. He called it Mayfair Farms, and it was mostly just a weekend getaway for him. He would come up from Nashville and spend time at the hall. Um, There was a fire from a lightning strike uh, around the time he bought it, like right after he bought it. And so the cupola had to be removed. And around this time, he brought in a Nashville architect to restore the building. Uh, This architect was Clarence Connell, and once he got there and he saw what Octagon Hall actually was, he basically told Dr. Williams, I can't, I'm not going to change anything. Um, So he was like, I'll make the necessary, like, restorative updates that the building actually needs, but I'm not going to change anything. And Dr. Williams was cool with that. In fact, he ended up loving Octagon Hall so much that he moved there full-time after he retired, and he spent the rest of his life lovingly maintaining it. In fact, his funeral was the last one to take place in the hall, and that was in the parlor in 1954. Octagon Hall received an historic marker in 1962 and was added to the National Register of Historic Places. And in 2001, the building and whatever land hadn't been parceled off by that time was acquired by the Octagon Hall Foundation and it's been turned into the Octagon Hall Museum, which you can go visit. Uh, You can check out octagonhallmuseum.com for more information on how to visit. But I will warn you, you do get slapped in the face a little bit with Confederacy memorabilia. As soon as you walk in, there are a lot of flags and other stuff, so just be ready. It's kind of a culture shock in a way. And I mean, I'll admit, I was actually a little hesitant to release this episode because I didn't want to offend anyone or make anyone uncomfortable. Um, I just couldn't pass it up because the building itself is just really bizarre and the history, I mean, it's, it's very relevant to the state of Kentucky in general and the paranormal stuff is so good as you'll see in the follow-up. So, you know, not, not every corner of our history is pleasant to talk about, but it did happen and I just don't think it would be right if I passed 
passed up some of these stories just because they talk about the, you know, the Confederacy a little bit. So again, I hope I didn't offend anybody and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, thank you to Bear for really spending some time with me at the hall and giving me the full story. Um, stay tuned because I'm going to do a mini follow-up of all the paranormal stuff that takes place at Octagon Hall. So that'll be coming out very soon. Thanks, and until next time. Thank you.